Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, the Winter Park Bach Festival celebrates their 75th anniversary with concerts and an exhibition at the Winter Park Historical Museum. The Bach Festival was started in 1936 by a very dynamic little woman, Mrs. Sprague Smith. We'll remember the infamous Rosewood Massacre of 1923, and as the space shuttle program comes to an end, we'll look at the history of the space industry in Florida. These people who were willing to work 10, 11, 12-hour days, day after day after day, and very few of these people were getting rich by any means. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. When the great Baroque composer Johann Sebastian Bach was born in 1685, the Florida city of St. Augustine, established in 1565, had been around for 120 years. Bach died in 1750, which was 95 years before Florida was named a state in 1845, and 135 years before Rollins College was founded in 1885. It was a concert celebrating Bach's 250th birthday held in Knowles Memorial Chapel at Rollins College in 1935 that inspired the establishment of the Bach Festival Society of Winter Park, which is celebrating its 75th anniversary in 2010. Philanthropist and arts leader John Tietke was president of the Winter Park Bach Festival for 54 years until his death in 2004. Tietke was born in Toledo, Ohio in 1907, and in this interview from 1995, he explains how he came to Florida. I came down winters practically all my life. My family used to come down winters in Orlando, and uh, I got to know more people here, and then I got involved in the sugar business in the Everglades in the 1930s. So I, uh, I spent quite a bit of time there, and then in 1948, uh, my wife and I decided we wanted to live here permanently, so at that from then on, this was my home. For more than half a century, John Tietke made great contributions to the arts in Central Florida, both financially and as an administrator. He helped to establish what would become the Florida Symphony Orchestra out of the Winter Park Symphony Orchestra. When we decided to live here, I thought it would be a good thing to get the old uh, Winter Park Symphony going again. It had gone out of operation during the war. I invited the old board up to my office and most of them didn't want to bother with it, but one of them did and Jessica Dyer and she 
said don't give up give me a couple of weeks so we had another meeting and she started digging up people and had Bob Carr who's the mayor Joy Hawley and Helen Ryan Dr. Spivak Rose Phelps and several people that were the core of the orchestra then and uh, had a trial concert in January of 1950 which was very well received and from then on they made an orchestra out of it. The Florida Symphony Orchestra ceased operation in 1994 but orchestral music continues in Central Florida with performances by the Orlando Philharmonic and the Brevard Symphony Orchestra. As John Tietke was reviving orchestral concerts in 1950, he also took over leadership of the 15-year-old Winter Park Bach Festival. The Bach Festival was started in 1936 by a very dynamic little woman, a Mrs. Sprague Smith, and she did a great job of creating it and getting it going. In 1950, she died suddenly. I was on the board, and nobody else on the board wanted the responsibility of trying to run it and keep it going. I finally agreed to do it, and then for two, three years, Hugh McCain, the president of Rollins, and I kept trying to find somebody to get to run it, and we couldn't. So he finally suggested I just take the title of president because I'd been running it anyway. And up to now, we still don't, still don't have anybody else to run it, so I'm still running it. John Tietke continued to run the Winter Park Bach Festival until his death in December 2004 at the age of 97. Today, Betsy Gwynn is executive director of the Bach Festival Society of Winter Park, which is the third oldest continuously operating Bach Festival in the nation, following events in Oregon and Pennsylvania. An exhibition at the Winter Park Historical Museum celebrates the 75th anniversary of the Bach Festival. As Betsy Gwynn explains, the exhibition begins with photographs, correspondence, and personal items from the festival's original organizer. Isabella Sprague-Smith was the Bach Festival Society's first president, and she was um, a, a member of the audience at a Vesper service that Dr. Christopher Honas, our first conductor, and Her Herman Seward, who was the Knowles Chapel organist, organized on March 22, 1935, in honor of the 250th anniversary of Johann Sebastian Bach's birth. And they developed this, and they promoted the event, and it really became a standing room only success and she came she came up to them following the performance and said I'd really like to be helpful in making this an annual event and as a child she or earlier in her life she had seen the Bethlehem Bach Choir in Pennsylvania and really wanted to model something in Winter Park on that and that's the oldest Bach festival in the country and that celebrated its 100th anniversary a few years ago so she really wanted to bring something like that to the South. She was 75 years old at the time, and she just um, wholeheartedly embraced the idea of a thriving Bach festival in Winter Park. Sprague Smith brought Bach scholar Albert Schweitzer to the Bach festival to lecture and perform. She also gave the event a national reputation with performances broadcast on NBC and CBS radio in the late 1940s and early 1950s. Handwritten notes and letters describing that process are part of the exhibition. We really worked to come up with a way that a guest could come in and 30 or 40 minutes get a real sense of the history of the Bach Festival Society. So predominantly, in addition to some objects that are in cases, uh, most of the information is on large, very colorful, illustrated panels. So we have archival photographs of, of our founders, including Isabella Sprague-Smith, 
and it's interesting, it's the only photograph that we have of Mrs. Smith, and she did not like to have her photograph taken and was very adamant about not getting public recognition for her work with the Bach Festival. She felt it was, it was a, a wonderful thing for her to do, but she really did not want recognition. And there's a photo of her and Dr. Hamilton Holt, who was president of the college, and Marjorie Kinnan Rollins. Both of the, the women were receiving honorary doctorates. And that was the only photo taken of her that, that we know of. And in fact, she made sure that Dr. Holt made no reference to her work with Bach Festival in, in the presentation of her degree. Images of Knowles Memorial Chapel at Rollins College, the 1930s passport of original festival conductor Christopher Honus, and festival programs from years past are all part of the exhibition celebrating the 75th anniversary of the Winter Park Bach Festival, along with articles and newspaper clippings about the event, handwritten thank you notes, and a timeline of festival milestones. There are historic photographs of festival soloists over the years, including Joanna Simon, sister of pop singer Carly Simon, who was known for wearing designer gowns during her performances. Also part of the exhibition is a video presentation of a classic Winter Park Bach Festival performance. Betsy Gwen. This is a film that was taken in 1967 of Ward Woodbury conducting members of the Bach Choir. And it's something that we came across in the office on an old reel-to-reel. And then we had someone digitize it, and it's been just a wonderful find. It's beautifully filmed, and it shows Dr. Woodbury and members of the choir. And front and center is one of the youngest choir members ever to sing with Bach, and it's Curtis Rayum, and he sang when he he was at Jones High School back in the 60s, and it's a great sort of full circle story. And he went on to be uh, an international operatic career. He came back to solo with the Bach Festival in subsequent years, and he now serves as a trustee of the society. So we really think that's a special, special video. In addition to 2010 marking the 75th anniversary of the Winter Park Bach Festival, it's the 20th anniversary of John Sinclair as artistic director of the event and conductor of the 150 voice. Bach Festival Choir and Orchestra. It's starting to make me feel old, but uh, I'm enjoying it immensely. And um, I think this makes me maybe the longest uh, tenure of a conductor in the Bach Festival. I've seen a lot of changes, and I've seen a lot of changes not only, not so much from how we do our music, but in how the world has changed and how people perceive classical music and how our audience view attending classical music. I think it's very important that we, we remain relevant. And that's been our biggest challenge and, frankly, the most amount of fun. One way that John Sinclair brings new audiences to the Winter Park Bach Festival is by focusing on popular works. A performance called The Anniversary Mass is actually a compilation of great choral pieces from different composers. The centerpiece of the 75th anniversary concerts, though, is the Mass in B Minor by Bach. It is a massive undertaking, but the fact that we have done it every three to four years for... Um, 75 years means that it's certainly in our bloodstream and it is one of the greatest pieces of music ever written and at the end of the day you're a better person for having listened to it and having sung it. Um, one of the a few few days ago as we were starting to rehearse it one of the orchestral players after we had played a movement of it looked up at me and said this is so good for the soul isn't it and it is and, and Bach's music and particularly the B minor mass is just good for your intellect and your spirit.
Other great works are being performed to celebrate the Bach Festival's 75th anniversary, including Mozart's Requiem. Mozart Requiem is so much fun. It, it is a powerful piece. It's almost a cultural icon after the movie Amadeus. Um, and then paired on that program also is uh, the clarinet concerto uh, with a pretty well-known player, Richard Stoltzman. And you don't get much better or, or better known as a clarinet player than Richard Stoltzman. And the Mendelssohn that's going to open that program is Fingal's Cave, uh, one of my favorite overtures. Uh, Mendelssohn played such an important role in in the resurgence of Bach's music. It was a hundred years after the first performance of the St. Matthew that Mendelssohn redid that work that brought Bach's music back into the forefront. A group of ancillary concerts include Rollins College faculty and student performances and an organ recital by James David Christie, John Sinclair. Probably one of the most fun is one we're calling Big Band Bach. It's always been my thought that if Bach were alive, he'd be a jazz musician. And the reason I say this, I know I could catch some heat from that comment, but the reason I say that is in his day, he was the best improviser of his day. They say he, anyone would, would challenge him. There's a famous story where Handel knew Bach was coming in town for an improvisatory contest, and Handel left town so he didn't have to compete. Uh, Bach was a master. And so what we've done is we've commissioned a handful of new big band charts written, like the big band size of a Glenn Miller or Benny Goodman, and giving them the music of Bach and themes, and so the music is on Bach's music doing big band. The celebration of the 75th anniversary of the Bach Festival Society of Winter Park continues through 2010 with a series of special events. We wouldn't want anyone to think that we are um, so entrenched in the past that we're not looking forward to the future. Uh, our spring concert, and we're celebrating all year long, we figured that this is our anniversary year and any performing arts organization that can make it for 75 continuous years should celebrate as long as you possibly can. And so in the spring, uh, we're doing a project along with the uh, Orange County History Center on they're bringing in costumes from, from uh, the movies. And so we're doing an all an evening of, of movie themes that'll be great fun. Sometimes you never get to hear the choir sing in some of those great big uh, romantic pieces, or even in the Phantom Menace of Star Wars. And so we're doing a whole variety of pieces there. And then in the uh, next fall, we're doing a new commission, and we're juxtaposing it in, as a revolutionary concert. Half the concert is a Beethoven 9, which we don't consider revolutionary, but in its day, it was a revolutionary piece. And then we're juxtaposing it against a new commission by a man named Jaron Lanier. Jaron is one of the great thinkers of our times. Uh, in an article in the New York Times last year, he was listed as one of the 100 intellects of the world. He is a computer wizard. He is a genius by all standards. And he's written a piece for us, and we've gotten our first draft of it, and it's outside of the box. So we have revolutionary music of our day, and we're going to put it opposite of the revolutionary music of the 19th century. As the Winter Park Bach Festival celebrates 75 years of history, Executive Director Betsy Gwynn sees a bright future for the organization. This anniversary has been a tremendous opportunity for the board and the members of our choir, our orchestra, our conductor and staff really to celebrate this milestone but also look forward and continue this legacy. I think everybody's so proud of, of what's been accomplished before but now we really are looking toward the future and how we can keep this music and this spirit alive. And I have to say that our success is really based on tremendous dedication by dozens of people, not just trustees and donors, but 
choir members and volunteers and um, other community members. It's a really special organization, and I have to say I'm really proud to be a part of it. For more information about the 75th anniversary of the Winter Park Bach Festival, visit their website at bachfestivalflorida.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to buy the latest books about Florida history and culture, explore historic photographs, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. While you're there, you can become a member of the Florida Historical Society. That's myfloridahistory.org. In 1923, the African-American town of Rosewood in North Florida was burned to the ground and some of its residents killed. The story was not well known for seven decades. Janie Gould talks with historian Maxine Jones, who headed an academic team examining the event for the Florida legislature as they considered financial reparations for the Rosewood survivors. January 1923, what happened in the small town of Rosewood? In a story that is often all too familiar, a white woman was physically assaulted, and the alleged assaulter was supposed to be a black man. And a search for that person ended up resulting in violence and killing, which basically brought the end to that small community. How many people were killed? Well, it depends on who's telling the story. Family members and people who live there claim that hundreds, we can only document eight, six blacks and two whites. But people who live there claim they remember bodies all over the place and ditches or holes being dug and the bodies being pushed in. But we found no evidence of that. I think the FDLE, which did an investigation later on, found no evidence either. The Florida Department of Law Enforcement. How are the killings done? Guns and by hanging. Buildings were burned. People were shot in the process of escaping. Many of the black families in Rosewood owned their own land. As a result of the violence, they lost everything. What happened to the survivors? They didn't stay in Rosewood, did they? No, we don't know the complete story. We know that people left and changed their names and lived in fear forever. And other families managed to survive. They all relocated, of course. Do any of the descendants of the original families still live in Rosewood? no. No, everybody left. In fact, at the time we were doing our research, there were probably no blacks in the Rosewood Sumner area. Was anybody ever arrested in the killings? No, which, again, was not unusual. One of the first men who was killed was Sam Carter. I think his death certificate probably read, died at the hands of parties unknown. Did anybody ever, any white person ever admit to this, to complicity in this? No one who was actually involved, but during our investigation, there was a white man named Ernest Parham, who was just a young man when the violence broke out. He was the only white person who corroborated the story of the Rosewood survivors. Do you think something like this could happen today in Florida? No, I I don't. I think what happened back then was that the government did not protect all of the citizens, and I think now the government would be there. You have authenticated a lot of things that were said and written over the years about Rosewood, but you've also debunked some things. There weren't hundreds killed. 
as far as we know, there weren't hundreds killed. As far as we know, Francis Taylor was not assaulted by a black man. Anytime you hear of a case like this, there are always two versions. There's a white version and a black version. The black version was that she was having an affair with a white man who bruised her up one morning. And the only way she could explain it to her husband was to say that she had been attacked by a black man. And then you have the white community's version that always the cry that goes up, a white woman has been assaulted by a black man. A uh, sorry footnote from Florida history. Just one of several. In 1994, the state awarded $2 million in compensation to Rosewood survivors and their families. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. The space shuttle program is scheduled to end later this year, which will change the face of Florida's east coast, eliminating thousands of jobs. But it's not the first time that the space program, which has been an economic engine in east central Florida, has also been the source of economic decline in the area. Bill Dudley has this report on how NASA has changed the lives of many people in our state. It was such a remote location. The mosquitoes were fierce. There were no motels. There were no grocery stores. In the 1980s, filmmaker Nancy Yaseko produced Growing Up With Rockets, a documentary about her childhood as the daughter of a NASA engineer. In a 1993 interview, she looked back on the space program's early days in Brevard County. There really was nothing over on the Barrier Island. A lot of people who had come down to work here couldn't find houses to live in. They didn't exist yet. They were sleeping in their cars. The space age in Florida began in July 1950 with the launch of a captured German V-2 rocket from Cape Canaveral, an elbow of land named by Spanish explorers in the 1500s. As the project took shape, engineers, technicians, and builders began pouring in. This particular area in the late 1940s and 50s was fairly isolated, but you had railroad transportation, US-1, and water transportation. A lot of the huge rocket components were barged in. That's one of the things that knocked out the White Sands missile range for consideration because you can't barge anything into the desert. Bob Taylor, associate professor of history at Florida Institute of Technology in Melbourne, teaches a course on the history of the space age. The government decided that the Canaveral area would be fine for future development for the larger missiles, and this would mean thousands of engineers and scientists and technicians would have to live and work in this area. And these folks arrived with a mission. Time was a factor. And one of the things they ran into was that the the community infrastructure just couldn't take this kind of expansion. There are stories old-timers tell of Cape engineers living in drain pipes stacked along the road because that's the only place they could find to live or people paying hundreds of dollars a month to sleep in a tool shed. It really was a a boomtown, gold rush mentality. Here you have a predominantly rural county, almost as big as Rhode Island, with 25,000 people. The vast majority were 
either in the citrus business or service industries for the tourist trade. William Fayerty is the author of the recent book, Florida's Space Coast, published by University Press. So suddenly you're going to have a group of 10 of the largest firms in the country, all in the aviation aeronautic area. People told me that when they came down there, they'd have to go 50 miles to a shopping center in Orlando. But in spite of these hardships, there was a kind of excitement in the air, undimmed even by the spectacular failures of many of the early launches. You'd hear a rumble, and everybody would run outside, dressed or not, and watch it, because you never knew what was going to happen. It was very unpredictable. You know, they'd go up, they might go this way, they might go that way, they often were blown up, which would make a big explosion in the sky if they were launched at just the right time of the evening so that the setting sunlight caught the bloom of the gases in the upper atmosphere. It would make a beautiful sort of parachute-shaped kind of thing. I mean, there was always a reason to run outside. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth. The big explosion came, of course, in the late 50s and the 1960s with the decision to race the Soviets into space and then race them to the moon. That's when the, the glory days of Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo just crowded seemingly the world into a small Florida cracker community. In talking to Cape veterans, Taylor says he was surprised by the esprit de corps of the space community. It's, it was the spirit. These people who were willing to work 10, 11, 12-hour days, day after day after day, and very few of these people were getting rich by any means. They were living in, in a developing community, but they believed so much in what they were doing that they were prepared to sacrifice almost everything to accomplish the goal that had been set by President Kennedy. That kind of dedication is, 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 is rare. Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Then something that nobody had really thought about started to happen. NASA had accomplished its mission. And after even the initial moon landings, national priorities changed. Interest waned. Not here. Brevard County was very much a space company town, but budgets began to be cut, and Apollo began to wind down. The boom started going bust. That's one of the stories that really hasn't been told of how many folks would come to Florida filled with excitement and patriotism and work so hard on this project to find themselves unemployed, underemployed, and having to dump their Florida dream to the first person who came along with any kind of money at all. You could go down any street, and it seemed like half the houses were either for sale or empty. Nobody could sell their houses. Lots of people just left them. They abandoned them. Nobody wanted them. They couldn't get anything out of them. They just drove away. In the 1970s, many of the space workers who left were replaced by a wave of retirees. But others hung on, hoping for better times. And in the 1980s, the space shuttle brought at least some of the excitement back to Brevard County. The question now, and a lot of folks in government and the aerospace industry are pondering this, is what's next? Because we're, we're at a point, I tell my students, probably the first space age is over because we've accomplished the goals. Been to the moon, we're going to have a space station, we have a shuttle. And these were goals that were all formulated in the 50s by people like Werner von Braun. The question is, now what? And how much are we willing to pay? And nobody really seems to know. So we're going to have to wait for the dawning of the second space age, which hopefully will be soon. I'm, I'm hopeful, but 
We don't know. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us here again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.